says. And uh, chapter 10 set this up. You had this man um, that was a very impressive looking man, obviously an angelic uh, being, and uh, later identified for us that way, that uh, came to reveal to Daniel things that were going to happen in the future. Now he had come, would have come earlier, but he was uh, detained by the prince of Persia and then uh, the Michael came and, and helped him. And so he was able to come, and now what we're going to see in chapters 11 and 12 is the revelation of these things that were going to happen in the latter days. So I think we're actually probably, I don't know, did we do 11-1? That's what I thought. So we're ready for 11-2, which is actually the vision itself. Now, there's some things about this that are probably worth noting before we get into it, just about what we're going to read. One of the things that I think is important to see in Daniel, and we've said this before, but you really see this here, is that the Jews in future generations will need this information as a strength and encouragement in dark and difficult days during those years of silence where there's no prophet that's going to be there telling them everything's okay, God's still got things under control, this isn't something that is, you know, desperate or, or whatever. And so that this will be really helpful for them to be able to see that everything that's happening that seems so bad and so help, hopeless are really things God had said a long time ago were going to happen and he was still going to bring his purpose to pass. And so what you end up having in Daniel 11 and 12 is one of the most strikingly detailed, predictive prophecies in all the Bible. There's probably nothing that's quite analogous to this. Because it just, detail by detail, goes through, um, well, 150, 200 years of the history in great detail. And, you know, that helps them really see God knows what's happening, He knew it already, and it's all within his purpose. Now, you know, another thing that this does is this really confirms the Lord's wisdom and knowledge and the fact that Daniel wrote by inspiration. Could you write something that was going to happen, uh, start happening a couple hundred years later and write it detail for detail, king for king? You know, you wouldn't have any idea. I mean, we have a hard... Tell me who's going to win the next presidential election. And maybe the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Yeah, right. Even the smartest people can't figure that one out. You know, let alone something that starts 200 years later, and they're working all the details out. Now, this passage is a huge problem for skeptics. Because the details just couldn't possibly be known ahead of time without God's inspiration. They don't believe in God. So they postdate this. They say this was actually somebody who wrote after the fact and projected himself back into the character of Daniel. I think there's all kinds of problems with that. Uh, there is really no evidence historically that that's the case. The Septuagint was written before this. You know, so it was translated before this. I mean, that would mean this book was written just, you know, a few decades before Jesus came on the scene. This book, Daniel was not treated by the Jews of Jesus' day like something they'd recently gotten. You know, this, this was not in the Apocrypha. This was a part of the canon of the Old Testament that was closed. You know, the Apocryphal books weren't added. Those books that were written in the years of silence. So I think historically, that argument is extremely weak. It's just what they're driven to by necessity. And so what you really have here is remarkable evidence for God's ability to know the future. You know, this is incredible. Um, and it so happens that while this is going to sound really complicated, uh, I don't know if you figured out a way to make this simple sounding, uh, Jeremy, but I can't figure out any way to do that. It's really complicated. But everybody agrees on almost every single detail from 2 to 35. There's, I don't care what their belief is. Now, they may say it was written after the fact, 
but they all agree on what the details refer to, whatever their theological, you know, persuasion is. So, you know, you can pick up any commentary. I was just studying last night much of this with uh, Tom Mock at church, and he's got a Bible with notes. I don't even remember what Bible it is. And, man, from 2 to 35, we just started reading the notes as we went through. I'd tell him what it meant, then we'd read his note, word for word, just, you know, right down the line, till you got to 36. And then they went ballistic, as most of them do. But uh, until 35, almost everybody says the same thing. So that does, does help. All right, anything you want to say by way of, uh, you know, introduction before we actually start into 11 Okay, would somebody read 2 to 4? And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia, then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches... He will arouse the whole empire against the Rome of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Okay. Here's the truth. Three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Now, this is in 10.1, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So we're in Cyrus's reign. Who were the next three kings of Persia? A guy named Cambyses. A guy who passed him off, himself off as being Smyrtus, so he's called Pseudo-Smyrtus. And Darius I, not to be confused with the Dariuses that are mentioned here in the book of Daniel. Those are the next three. Then a fourth. Now the fourth is Xerxes, known in the story of Esther as Ahasuerus. That's just the Hebraized, you know, Xerxes. I know it doesn't seem anything like the same. Uh, but Xerxes is a whole lot easier to say than Ahasuerus, so we'll just stick with that. Uh, then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. That's Xerxes. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will rouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Which he did. Xerxes mounted a major campaign against Greece in which he was soundly thrashed, both in a land battle defeat and a naval defeat. And that's probably when he came back home and they suggested he really needed a new queen to cheer him up. That's probably the historical background for them searching for an Esther for him. Uh, so... That's, uh, this dovetails right with the story of Esther. Now, Greece does not immediately retaliate. But they don't forget that. The retaliation comes 150 years later in verse 3. So, what you have in verse 2 are the next four kings of Persia, including Xerxes, who made this disastrous campaign against Greece. Then, verse 3, and a mighty king will arise. Now, that would be the Grecian king, the mighty king, Alexander the Great, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. There will be three kings that it will say that about in Daniel 11. Do as they please. And every single time it says that, the next verse is, and they ended in disaster. You know, there was some terrible tragedy that occurred. Whenever anybody lets power and success go to their head, to where they think they can do as they please, that is not good. So Alexander the Great, you know his story. He came against the empire of Persia and wiped it out. Took it over. Alexander the Great was amazing. From the time he was 18 till about the time he was 32, he conquered the known world, more or less. You know, he went from Greece to the border of India. And that was, I mean, wow. He really dominated more territory than Persia ever did. Uh, and 14 years. I mean, by the time he's 32, they say he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Uh, however, verse 4, but as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass. He died on his way back to Macedonia, Greece, in Babylon, at the age of 32 or 33. His sons were very small, very young, so... There was no natural successor to the throne. So, his kingdom was split in four parts. Though not to his own descendants. It was generals of his 
that took over uh, his kingdom, parcel dot out four, nor according to his authority which he wielded for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Certainly none of those four were anything close to as powerful as what Alexander had been. And the four were Greece, Thrace, Syria, and Egypt. Now, Greece and Thrace don't matter much for the land of Palestine. So that's the end of us looking at them. But Syria and Egypt are on either side of the Holy Land. And they fought back and forth across Palestine for about 150 years that are detailed here. Maybe 170. Um, You've got the king of the north and the king of the south. He never gives their names, but the king of the north referred to the Seleucids who ruled Syria. The kings of the south are the Ptolemies. Starts with a P, but it's like tomaine poisoning. It starts with a P, but you don't spell, you don't say the P. Do you know that? Or pterodactyl, and that starts with a P, and you don't say the P. There's a few words we got like that that are PT. I don't know what that comes from. But so if you if you look at this, it's P T O L E M Y, but it's pronounced Ptolemy. They were the ones in Egypt. They were the kings of the south. So, he's going to go through different episodes of the king of the north, the Seleucids, Syria, the king of the south, the Ptolemies, Egypt. In fact, this breaks nicely into pairs of kings and their interactions. So we'll kind of look at them a pair at a time, the south and north, you know, and their interaction uh, from generation to generation. But, what do you have to say or ask about through verse 4? Okay, the first pair, verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. Now, the king of the south here would be the first Ptolemy ruling in Egypt. His name was Soter. He was the, the Ptolemy the first. And what happened was that there was a, a king appointed in Syria, a guy named Nicator. But he was sort of, you know, kicked out of power by a guy named Antagonus. And he fled to Egypt and became a general in the, uh, the Ptolemy Soter's army and won some victories for him managed to get Antagonus off of the throne and went back up to Syria and took over. And and when he took over, after he received asylum, been protected by the Ptolemy for a few years, he goes back up there once Antagonus is, is out of the way and takes over the kingship. He actually becomes stronger than the Ptolemy, even though the Ptolemy had taken care of him for a while. And, and has a more powerful and larger empire. So that these are the first two, basically, of the king of the south and the king of the north. Ptolemy the first and Seleucus the first. Comments and questions on that? Alright, this gets kind of bizarre from here on out, as international politics usually does. The second pair, verse 6, and at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority. And neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. Okay, we're down to the another uh, second pair. The Ptolemy in question in verse 6 was the son of the Ptolemy in verse 5. Ptolemy II, Philadelphus. The Seleucid in question is Antiochus II, the grandson of the Seleucid king that established the great empire in verse 5. Here's what they do. The Ptolemy II, he decides to form an alliance with Antiochus II in Syria. So he gives his daughter to the king of Syria as his wife. Now that's something they did all the time. You know, you make a marital alliance and theoretically you're not going to fight against your own kid. 
you know, or whatever. There was one problem with this. When Ptolemy II gave his daughter to Antiochus II for a wife, Antiochus II was already married. And he divorced his wife to marry this uh, girl. Uh, her name was uh, Bernice. And the divorced wife was named Laodice. And Laodice didn't like that very well. She wasn't all that much in favor of being divorced and of uh, him getting a new honey. And so after two years, he ends up getting back with her. And she arranges for her son to murder Bernice and to murder the Egyptians that were Bernice's servants and attendants. And she poisons her husband, Antiochus II. Well, that, of course, doesn't really help relations between the kings of the south and the kings of the north. And so ends that marital alliance, the treaty that was supposed to bring peace between the king of the south and the king of the north. Now, I don't know how much of that you really want to remember. Uh, it takes me some effort to remember all of that. Uh, and uh, some liberal notes. But, uh, but that's basically what happened. Uh, and again, every commentary says the same thing. There's not a debate about any of those facts, I don't think. Yeah. In my Bible, verse uh, verse six says that uh, she shall be given up, and her attendants, and he he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Yes. So what what happened to Ptolemy II? He died the same year that she was killed. Okay. Yeah. So he's a, both kings die, and so does. Uh, the Ptolemy's daughter that was married to Antiochus II. Uh, both di all died in the same year. Yeah. So did they not marry multiple wives? You know, I wondered that myself. I don't know. I just know what he did, but I'm not sure if some of them were polygamous or not. That, that wasn't as common, I don't think, in this period as it had been earlier, but I don't know if some of them were married. Do you know, Jim? You don't read about it as often the further into yeah. history we get. I mean, the first century, it definitely wasn't common to have multiple wives. So. Comments and questions on verse 6? How are you using, when you said liberal notes, how are you using the word liberal? Like, do you mean a like lot you're not really sure? Of <laughs> I know if you really meant that, like, no, no. like you're not sure. <laughs> no, I just dare. mean, I got a cheat sheet. It's got a lot of notes. There's no way you can fit all that in the margin of your Bible. It means, oh, okay. it means I haven't got all this in my head. Oh, okay. That's all I'm saying. Okay. As compared to the conservative notes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you wanted the conservative <laughs> version. I don't know. Hey, wait, like, like, I know exactly what you meant. So. <laughs> I better be careful about this. I may get a reputation here. You're using liberal notes to teach by, so. All right. Other questions or comments? <laughs> All right, the third pair, seven to nine. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength, and also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will, but will return to his own land. All right, verse 7. One of the descendants of her line. Now, we're talking about who actually was Bernice's brother. The son of Ptolemy II. This guy... Uh, whose name is Euergetes, or something that way, becomes Ptolemy III. That's a lot easier to say. And um, he wants revenge for the murder of his sister and the Egyptian attendants and so forth, so he invades uh, the Seleucid Empire. Uh, Laodice herself is actually ruling over it uh, at the time. And she ends up being killed... And for five years he invades, does a lot of damage, and takes a lot of stuff. It may be that revenge was not his only motive, 
since he manages in verse 8 to take the gold, the gods with their metal images and the vessels of silver and gold and so forth and so on. So this ends up uh, certainly profiting him uh, as well as punishing the Seleucids for the murder of his sister. And then, verse 9, the latter, that's Seleucus II, who's Laodice's son, who takes over for her, he attacks Ptolemy III, but he has no success. And so that ends that pair. Questions and comments about that? Ptolemy and name are a title. Ptolemy is a title. It's like the popes do. Mo- I, I, you, know, you said this dude became Ptolemy III, and like, yeah, his name was Euergetes, right, or something right. like that. But once he becomes king, he yeah. becomes Ptolemy the Third. As far as I can remember, at least through this period, I think all of them in Egypt were Ptolemies, but they all weren't in Syria. weren't Seleucuses. Some of them were Antiochuses. <laughs> do you know why they like? We don't say Obama the forty-fourth. Like, do you know why they have? Well, I mean, I think it's the forty-fourth. We'll say, we'll say. <laughs> The 44th president in yes. his name. Right. So, so it's is it the same idea? Yeah. But, but, but it's, okay. it's what they did in Europe a lot, too. You know, there are a bunch of Louis and Henrys and things like that. You know, when they became king, they picked a name. Okay. And they became Henry VIII or whichever one was the next one, just like the popes do. Okay. I don't, who is the pope now? Pope Benedictine or something Benedict, like that. Benedict, yeah. Is that, is that his, what he's going to going, Is so. he the first, second, third? What is he? He's not the first. No, I didn't think he was the first. And before it was John Paul, and he wasn't the first either. He wasn't the first either. And some of them, there have been a ton of them. You know, there were a bunch of piouses back in the Middle Ages and things like that. So, yeah, they pick whatever name they want, more or less. And if it's already been used, then they count down how many times. Exactly. What number they are. Exactly. And all the women were Cleopatras. There are some Cle- several Cleopatras, but I don't think they were the first and second. Though. Oh, no. that, that John Paul II, that one had a real name. It wasn't really John Paul II. No, oh, no, no, not a given oh. name. None of them. Oh, I don't. Yeah, they oh. were somebody, and then when they became Pope, like Pope oh. Benedict, I don't know, I don't remember I don't what the real name they were. <laughs> he was oh, somebody okay. or other. I haven't learned that part of the calendar. I mean, I know some his name's like Carlos or something. You know? <laughs> 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 he was Polish, so it was probably some Polish. Spin. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, they probably had way more continents say. and vowels in his day. <laughs> yeah, hard to say Pope's sin. Yeah. It's so much easier to say. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, so this is the same thing. So okay. when they become king, they become Ptolemy the whatever, okay. or Seleucus the whatever, Antiochus the whatever. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Good questions. All right, other questions or comments through verse 9? All right, the fourth pair we've got more to say about. Oh, uh, yes. sorry, I can ask more of um, Yes, you can. As long as I can answer it, you can ask it. Okay. Uh, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask them. Maybe I'm not. just kidding. Uh, so in, in, in verse 8, when it says, carry their gods, what are they referring to? <laughs> like the the images. Okay. I think it's funny. They, they took their gods into captivity. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know. know. <laughs> yeah, uh, it I, is funny. I'm saying they're Genesis. You guys are in trouble because I yeah. got your god in jail. <laughs> who, who is it? Who is it? Re- Rebecca? that sat on the gods on the camel. Yes. I'm like, what kind of a god is that when you can sit on the... Well, I understand it was really more like property deeds, but you know what I mean? Like, if you can sit on your god, like... Yeah, maybe it wasn't, <laughs> it was, but yes, absolutely. And, you know, she was in a female way, or at least said she was, so, so that's even Mickey more Jesus ridiculous. Manner of woman. Yeah. So. Stop and think about that. So, you know, you can steal the gods, you can sit on them, they can, yeah. you know... It's just a funny it's idea. Terrible. Yeah. yeah. So... And it's, I mean, it's all, it is kind of intended at times, I think, in the Bible. I think they intentionally say some things to kind of poke fun at this whole idea of them being gods. Yeah. I mean, think about those passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah that talk about, you know, how you make a god. You know, I mean, some of the times they tell that almost in a way to make it funny. I mean, you can't hardly describe the making of the god without it being funny. But, they, yeah, like, you know... You know, you, then you nail it down good and proper because you, you know, hate to have a guy that toppled over. We put all this gold in and out came the cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's one of the funniest ones. Okay, Pope, Pope Benedict the 16th. He was born Joseph uh, Alois Ratzinger. Yeah, yeah, that's what he was. Yeah. That's right, Joseph Ratzinger. Yeah, it's Pope Benedict. Yeah. 16. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good thing he became Pope. <laughs> you got to go to bed yet. 
I don't know, I always think of Arnold when I think of Benedict, so. That's what I was thinking of. I can't hear that name without thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> the only Benedict I knew until this guy came along. But what? I didn't realize there had been so many. Well, if I'm doing my Roman numeral. That should be Roman numeral practices when you go to the Pope's. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for that. I'll tell you, with, with uh, all this uh, technology these days. We'll check up on you. Anything you say. I have to, and you can do it with these guys. So, uh, yeah, because they're all through history. But you got lots of historical information on all these guys. All right. So the next pair, fourth pair is 10 to 19. And his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great, of great forces. And one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war in his very fortress. And the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a great multitude and uh, raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years he will press on with a great army and much equipment. <clears throat> now in those times many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege mound, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. And he will set his face to come with power, or with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of, of women, women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Okay. Well, I'll have to talk about this a little bit longer. Obviously, got more details here. Um, his sons. We're talking about the sons of uh, Seleucus II, who died in a fall from a horse. And uh, he had two sons who succeeded him. Seleucus III, who reigned about three years and was murdered, and Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great, uh, and, who reigned for 36 years. He became king when he was 18, reigned for 36 years. So he got a very important reign. So that's who we'll look at here, as far as the king of the north, is Antiochus the Great. And it says, his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them, that's Antiochus the Great, will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. So he's going to invade and have great success in his uh, military campaigns against various places. But then, verse 11, the king of the south, by now we're to Ptolemy the fourth, will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. The latter will raise a great multitude, uh, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. Now, both of these guys raged in, raised enormous armies. The, the Ptolemy IV had about 70,000 foot soldiers, about 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants, which were big in battles in that era. Antiochus the Great had, you know, always big, but <laughs> they were important in battles. <laughs> were they liberal or conservative? <laughs> some liberal elephants, by the way. The corpulent elephants. That'll get me out of trouble. I'm not saying, were they bigger than what they are now? No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, but, you know, they're probably African elephants or something. I don't know. I think that makes a difference, but. Uh, I remember what. Uh, Antiochus had 62,000 foot soldiers, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. And they fought this big battle, and Ptolemy IV came to great victory. He defeated Antiochus the Great. And, and, you know, he had a really good opportunity 
to be able to really take some territory and inflict some damage on Antiochus the Great, but he didn't do it. He gained the victory, and then verse 12, his heart was lifted up, and he didn't prevail. He returned to a life of self-indulgence and luxury and all that back in Egypt, and didn't really press the advantage that he had, which gave Antiochus the Great time to regroup and mobilize his forces, and about 15 years later, in about 202 B.C., uh, the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, verse 13, will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years he will press on with a great army and much equipment. And so he defeats the Ptolemies. Um, he does it right when Ptolemy the fourth dies, and Ptolemy the fifth takes over as a four-year-old. And uh, that was a good opportunity. Obviously, the four-year-old's not really running the country, but there was perhaps a little bit more instability in Egypt, and so this is Antiochus, uh, the great opportunity to defeat the Ptolemies and Egypt. Now look at verse 14. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. There were a lot of Jews that joined with Antiochus the Great. However, um, well, look at verse, let's see. Well, the, in, in, verse, in verse 14 it says, but they will fall down. What happened is there was an Egyptian general named Scopus who launched a counteroffensive against some of the Jews that were allied with Antiochus the Great and, and defeated them, killed them, but then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. This general Scopus went to Sidon. Antiochus the Great uh, set a siege up against Sidon and conquered it. And so, 13 to 15, Antiochus the Great defeats the Egyptian forces. I'll pause there. Do you have questions or comments through verse 15? All right, in verse 16, but he who comes against him will do as he pleases. We're talking about Antiochus the Great, and that phrase again, he does as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. This is the time when the Seleucids really consolidate their hold on the land of Palestine, on Jerusalem, and things like that. But, as we said, when the king starts doing as he pleases, that's usually bad news. Look at verse 17. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. Antiochus the Great had the bright idea of trying to bring the boy king, Ptolemy V, who's now, I think maybe just 10 years old or so, he marries his daughter off to him, thinking that she will be able to have great influence over him and make him sort of a, a you know, uh, follower and, and subservient to Antiochus the Great. Her name was Cleopatra, but it's not the Cleopatra that's more famous. Um, she does marry this boy king, uh, this Ptolemy V, only she ended up taking the Egyptian side and supporting the Egyptian cause instead of remaining loyal to her father. <laughs> so she, uh, this didn't work out quite as well as Antiochus the Great thought it would. He says he will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. She turned against her father supported her boy husband and the Egyptian cause. So, he turns his face, this is Antiochus the Great still, he turns his face to the coastlands and capture many. You know, he's going to try to deal with some, and take some territory in the Mediterranean area. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. What happens is, the Romans by this time are powerful. And they defeat Antiochus the Great in the Battle of Thermopylae in 191 and the Battle of Magnesia in 190, and they do damage. 
in a treaty they signed in 188, Antiochus the Great has to give him territory, a lot of his military, 20 hostages, including his son who will become Antiochus IV, and pay huge indemnity fines to Rome. This was a disaster for the Seleucids and for Antiochus the Great. Right after he thought he could do whatever he pleased. And in verse 19, so he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. He ends up uh, being killed uh, in uh, a raid on a, a temple to try to get some resources to pay off Rome. Uh, so that's the end of Antiochus the Great's, Great's 36-year reign, about a year after he signs the treaty with Rome. Comments and questions on all that? So the tribute was due to Rome, not Egypt? Correct. Okay. Yeah, yeah it was due to Rome, and, because the, and the Romans took Antiochus Epiphanes mm-hmm. and others into custody. And they, as I understand, they paid. They were to pay Rome. Right. Yeah. And the temple that he was looting. Was some a temple of some god. I've forgotten who. I, I can't remember the name of the deity, but um, someone was making the point that he couldn't go south to Egypt to get the money, and he couldn't keep going west because Rome had beat him back. And so he was getting the money by going back through his own territory and looting his own places. Yeah, I think it was a temple in his own territory. I just don't remember okay. what it was called. Yeah. Someone also said that the daughter that he married off was seven years old. Yeah, Boyd made a comment in class last night. I thought night. he said that the son was. I thought he said the daughter. He was said the daughter. Old. Remember, he should have waited until she was eight, so she wouldn't have turned. That's on right. Him. That was the comment that was made. Yeah. So. I have no information on Boyd. I don't know. I have not read that. I hadn't either. He said the boy was ten or so. The right. boy was about ten. Is that right. your information? Right. Well, so both kids are running. So they got married and went out and played on the deer. <laughs> I don't know. I, I wonder if that's correct information. I have to look at the at his book. He was looking at um, Waldron's Waldron's material. So he might I, have gotten the boy and the girl. I think I have read Waldron's material before, um, but I don't remember. Specifically. How old do you think Cleopatra was? I don't know. That was the girl's name, right? Yeah. I mean, I was assuming she was. You know, a young woman, able somebody sh- that he thought could influence. I mean, think about who's going to influence boy. a ten or eleven year old boy. Probably not going to be a good looking girl. Yeah. girl down. Yeah, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, there may be a way to find out that information. I don't know. Uh, yeah, look, look that up. Right. So if he had all this huge military power, why did he bank his strategy on his daughter's ability to woo this king? Well, I mean, it's not like the Ptolemies didn't have some strength. I mean, he'd gotten beaten early on in his reign soundly by the Ptolemies. So even though he's just won recently, the best thing you can do is get him to ally with you. And then you don't have to waste your resources invading and conquering. You can turn to other places or whatever. I mean, they always wanted the alliances to where they could, you know, kind of have a united front against somebody else. That'd be my answer. It's the cheapest way to get what you want. Absolutely, yeah. And they did it. If you see your daughter is the I'm not scared to tell you like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, he lost his daughter. Yeah. Uh, okay, so in verse 14, uh, okay, I got a footnote that says, well, there is, well, how's the New American Standard in verse 14? Now, in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Okay, where he says violent ones, might just say violent men, but they're, yeah. they're after violent men. I got a footnote that says, or robbers, and then it says literally sons of breakage. You know what that means? No. I have no idea what that I don't have <laughs> Okay, I was just curious. If they're breaking things, they're probably violent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is that really what it, like breakage is? Like, I have no idea. Break? Like I don't know if that was. B r e a k a g e. That was what I initially thought. B r e a k a g e. Breakage. I don't know if it literally meant to like to break things. Like what? You remember in uh, it says literally so over. <laughs> remember when God's anger was kindled against the Israelites during the forty years of wandering, and it says that His anger broke forth, mm-hmm. and it was this idea of His punishment was His wrath was being poured out on the people for their sin, okay. and then in. 
Micah. Um, in chapter 2, it describes God as the one, uh, or Jesus, it's talking about Jesus. He's going to be the king and their leader and the breaker of the people. He's the one okay. who's going to break them out, break them free. Okay. Uh, and that's it's done violently. So, hmm. okay. Maybe his explanation is pretty good. It just sounds like anybody that had a um, mind to fight. Say, yeah. hey, here's a fight, let's join. Yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. But didn't they uh, regret that later when some yeah. of the other from yeah, the South the, came up and right, so they shall fall. So. Right. Okay. So they didn't. They didn't forget it. Okay. All right. There's then verse twenty. I think should be handled separately. Somebody want to read that? There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Okay. Now this is Seleucus the fourth that takes over for Antiochus the Great. Uh, he arises. He sends an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. There was a guy named Heliodorus. I have no idea how to pronounce any of these names, but uh, you know, as long as I don't let on, you won't know. Uh, Heliodorus. That's I just go with it, dude. Uh, and he went to Palestine to try to raid the temple treasury, still trying to pay off this massive debt to Rome. And then this king, uh, Seleucus IV, within a few days was shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. He died mysteriously after about a 12-year reign. We think he was poisoned, maybe by this Heliodorus, who was trying to maneuver himself into the kingship that didn't happen. Uh, but that's uh, it's a bad way to die. You know, the kings would always rather die uh, in battle. That's the noble way to die. Uh, so this that that's just kind of a, you know... We kind of get him in between Antiochus the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. It'll start in verse 21. I want to make another point that will uh, help me later. <laughs> Notice like verse 20. Then in his place one will arise. We've seen that a lot. Things like that. In verse 2, three more kings are going to arise. Verse 3, a mighty king will arise. Verse 4, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken. Verse 5, then the king of the south will grow strong. Uh, and, you know, verse 7, one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place. Verse 10, his sons will mobilize. Verse 20, then in his place one will arise. Verse 21, in his place a despicable person will arise. Now, I know we're not using names. We're saying king of the south, king of the north. Kind of like saying, you know, president of you know, the U.S. and the prime minister of England, you know, something like that. But we are pretty consistently saying something to show when we're moving on to a new one, a new set. Now that's going to set me up for later, uh, because there's a huge debate even among brethren as to what happens when we start in verse 36. But I think it's noteworthy that normally in this passage, there's a clear signal given when we move to another king. And so, the in his place in verse 20, we're moving to Seleucus IV. The in his place uh, in verse 21, we're moving to Antiochus IV, and so forth and so on. When you don't have that, I think there's considerable burden of proof on somebody who wants to jump to another king, or as many do in verse 36, a whole other era. All right, anything you want to say for 20? Um, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead if I am. I can wait, but I mean, in verse 21 it says it shall be destroyed. Jumping ahead. Okay. <laughs> verse 21 is still ahead. I just made one point. He, he was setting himself up for later. Were <laughs> you setting yourself up for later? Yes. <laughs> You're not allowed. Oh. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. Okay. So we're down through 20? We're down through 20. So, okay, so um, is it Seleucus IV who sends Heliodorus? Yes. Okay. That's what I understand. Yeah. And to like to, to collect taxes from the Jews? Yes, and to raid the temple. Yeah. And then Heliodorus comes back and kills? That's what we think. Okay. It's Lucas the Fourth. Right. Okay. Yeah. 
So the person being broken in, in 20 is Lucas? Yes. Okay. That's what I think. No, if he was poisoned, wasn't he killed in anger? No. It wasn't a violent death. Okay. And why did they poison people? Get him out of the way. Why? They didn't like him. No, not necessarily. Yeah, they yeah, they're just trying to get in themselves. You know, it's all political it's, stuff. It's yeah. really they don't want people to have a king when you already have a king. Exactly. <laughs> you got to bump him off so you can take over. It's kind of like the Lion King. <laughs> no king, no king. <laughs> so it doesn't, it's not necessarily they were mad at the other guy. It's that they want his job. <laughs> I was human. <laughs> okay. Well, I think they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I just need your dad. I just need your dad. <laughs> okay. Well, that makes sense. So it's not it's not violent or in battle, basically. It's just peacefully poisoned. And yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay. An act of mercy. Okay. Wasn't even angry about it. He's quite happy. <laughs> he happily poisoned him. Was it a quick death? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I have it. I have it that this uh, <laughs> Cleopatra was born in 204, engaged to Ptolemy to Ptolemy the fifth in 196 at age eight, and married in Raphia at at uh, age ten. There you go. What? So she was eight and he was, or how? Yeah, she was 10. He was 10? He was born in 203. That's right. He was born in 203. She's born in 204, so it says. They're about the same age. So yeah. she was a year older than he was. And she had her daughter, Cleopatra II, at age 15. <laughs> Who was born when? 203? He? he was, she was born in 204, so she's a year older. He was born in 203. So he's a year older. Right. No. Other He's so, not a little. Oh, we're seeing. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and and then subtracting. Wait a minute. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. So wait, was Cleopatra her name or was that a title? Her name. It was her name, but it became a title. Oh, okay. Cleopatra, even the Cleopatra we know, wasn't really a title, was it? No, I guess it really was. Really that was her name. name. Yeah. She was Cleopatra the first, and her daughter was the S- second. S Y R A Sierra. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. daughter then. Oh, she did have a second. Okay. Well, I learned something. She was the Cleopatra then. The Cleopatra. Because I was going to say, if that was Cleopatra the second, when the junior was on the female, that. I don't, like, I don't. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, we we do that with names. I mean, we'll yeah. like Paul Jr. And we but maybe it was a title. But that was on the female side. That's what confused yeah. me. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I was like. Nobody can understand the female side anymore. Well, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Thank you, Kirk. Yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, anything else on all this? And thank you for that, John. I learned something. Twenty-one to twenty-four. We're, we're going to take Antiochus the fourth in stages. And in his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. And after an, old, uh, an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. All right. This despicable person is Antiochus IV, otherwise known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes has to do with uh, an epiphany, which is like a manifestation of God. So he thought of himself as being a manifestation of God. The Jews uh, behind his back did not call him Epiphanes. They called him Epimenes, the madman. I don't think they usually said that when he was around. Um, he was a despicable person. He definitely was. Uh, and it tells us in uh, these verses, particularly verse 21 and 23, that he connived and finagled his way into power. He was really not the rightful successor 
but he managed to politic his way into position and flooded out the opposition, the overflowing forces we flooded away before him and shattered. And so he manages to deal with the opposition and become king by deception. And um, in verse 24, in a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest part of the realm and manages to grab a lot of stuff. He got a lot of wealth uh, in various ways to finance an extravagant lifestyle um, and seems to pretty much do what he wants to But the end of verse 24, but only for a time. When you read those things like only for a time, the idea is God sets the limit. It's not going to be forever. So that's kind of Antiochus' rise to power and his general character. This is Antiochus. Comments or questions on that? Didn't you say he was one of the, uh, or taken away as a hostage? He had been, but he was out by now. Raised, raised bail. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember what happened. Mm-hmm. I think I wrote that. Really? Maybe. And then he killed, no, his brother's prime minister, somebody got him out and they killed whoever got him out, I think. Okay. In, in 22, um, who is the Prince of the Covenant? I don't know the answer to that. Okay. Maybe Onias Third, the godly high priest. But there's other options. Yeah, the high priest did that sort of stuff sometimes, too. <laughs> we got, everything's by a Roman number around in part. <laughs> Hope you did well in that in school. Oh. Were they called Roman numerals? Like, based off of the Roman like, part of the world? Yeah. That never struck me. I just never. Uh, I was just gonna say, Seleucids use their own numbers, or do they use the Romans? That's just never. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about all that, but uh, that Roman numerals come from the idea of the Roman people. It was Latin. Yeah, which was which was the language. Okay. And had Alexandria been set up at this point? Probably. I think Alexandria, the the big library down in Egypt, had been set up at that point. And so they were bringing all these people from all over the world to accumulate as much literature from around the world in one location, which is where we got the Septuagint. All right, next stage of Antioch's Epiphanies, 25 to 28. And he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, But his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. Okay. So, he invades uh, the the south, the Egyptians. Uh, uh, Ptolemy VI is now reigning in the south. And um, he manages to conquer Ptolemy VI. And they do all sorts of scheming and conniving between them. They pretend to ally. Um, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes pretends to be a friend of Ptolemy VI, and Ptolemy VI pretends to believe that. <laughs> and they try to double-cross each other, and so forth. Uh, and no, that really uh, does anything. Uh, it will not succeed, as it says in verse 27, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. God's still in charge. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, uh, again, Antiochus always managed to have a lot of money. But his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. There's a lot of things that Antiochus Epiphanes did against the Jews, or against the Lord, even before the terrible atrocities that come in the next section. Among other things, he basically lets people buy their way in the, into the high priesthood. Um, Jason bribed him to become priest in Onias III's place, so he let him be the priest. 
Then a guy named Menelaus offered a bigger bribe, and Antiochus took out Jason and gave it to Menelaus, and things like that. He is dominating even Jewish religion at this point, and the temple service and so forth. So he's definitely not a friend to the Lord or to the faithful Jews. Comments and questions to 28. One of the things that we mentioned last night, backing up even to verse 14, but especially with what you mentioned um, with the Holy Covenant and uh, accepting bribes from the high priesthood, was um, the rise of Hellenism with some of the Jews. And so you started to get this fierce hatred between those that were accepting this Grecian culture and those that were trying to stay faithful to God. And you see that spill over into the New Testament. Someone's asking, where does that come from? It's like, well, it comes from here. And you see that a lot in the rest of Daniel. You've got the righteous, the faithful, and you've got the defectors that are more politically motivated. Some of them ally with Antioch's Epiphanes and things like that. There's really, I think, a lot... I think, think chapters 10 to 12 are really written for the purpose of these sections from here on out. Encouraging and guiding the faithful in these terrible times of antioxidants. Alright, the next section is uh, interesting and terrible. 29 to 35. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged, and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Alright, so at the appointed time, you have those ideas. God is in control of even what he's doing in Egypt. He comes into the south. Remember the last time he he defeated Ptolemy VI? It doesn't turn out that way this time. He invades the south, but, verse 30, the ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return. Now what happens, as I understand it, is that when Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Egypt this time, there was a the Romans didn't want Antiochus Epiphanes being too strong. They sent ships with a general down there, a guy named Gaius Papilius Lanus, who came to Antiochus Epiphanes and ordered him on on the command of the Roman Empire not to advance against the Egyptians. And what I understand is Antiochus Epiphanes asked for time to think about it. And this Gaius fellow takes a stick and draws a, a big circle in the sand around Antiochus Epiphanes and says, you can take all the time you want, but make up your mind by the time you leave the circle. He really couldn't fight the Roman Empire, so he turns around and goes back home. But he's not a happy camper. And it says that he will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. It's kind of like getting mad at the dog, but the dog's bigger than you are, so you kick the cat. You know, he was mad, but he kicks the the Holy Covenant. He kicks, kicks the Jews. He shows regard for those who forsake the covenant. Forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress, do away with the regular sacrifice, they will set up the abomination of desolation. So all kinds of terrible things that happen. Many Jews killed. All sorts of idolatrous practices in the temple. An altar to Zeus was erected on the bronze altar on December the 16th, 167, and they had a pig offered on the altar of sacrifice. 
they, he sprinkled the sanctuary, the temple sanctuary, with pig's broth. He ordered a sacrifice of a pig to be made monthly on his birthday, on the 25th of the month. Now, for Jews, what would that, what would that mean? They've defiled God's temple. They can't do anything with it. It's just an outrage. I mean, pigs were unclean animals. They were offering unclean animals on God's holy altar. In honor of Zeus. It's just, it's just an outrage. It's a horrible thing. And it polarized the Jews. Some of them remained faithful regardless of the cost and the consequences. And some of them formed political alliances with Antiochus. So, in verse 32, By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. So he's a conniver. He managed to manipulate some of the Jewish leaders. Uh, but there are some people who are with the Lord. Those who have insight among the people, verse 33, will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by sword, flame, captivity, and plunder. So there are some faithful ones who teach and who guide, but they, they suffer a lot. They're persecuted, they're killed. The Lord offers them a little help. I'm not sure what that refers to. Many will join with them in hypocrisy. There were some hypocritical Jews who joined the faithful, but they weren't really sincere. But, verse 20, 35, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure. What happens is the persecution is so severe that it purges out the hypocrites. And you end up with a small, purified group of people who were really loyal to God, who were fighting for the Lord's cause. You know, it, as it stands right now, I wonder if there are many churches in America that don't have a whole lot of very hypocritical, half-hearted Christians who don't really care that much, but they keep going to church. What if they were killing people who were going to church? What if they were burning at the stake people who didn't deny the Lord? What would that do to those half-hearted, uncommitted, hypocritical people? It wouldn't be worth it to fall out. You know, you're not going to risk your life for this stuff. And what it would do, it would purify out a people who are really loyal, people who are really faithful. And that's what ends up happening. Uh, and so you have very much a division of the Jews. You have the faithful, and you have those who are not willing to risk for the cause of the Lord. Really terrible time when Antiochus Epiphanes just dominates their religion, and, and a small number of Jews are holding faithful, terribly persecuted. Cameron. Could these be the people it's talking about in Hebrews 11, verses 36-38, when it says that, and others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn too. They were tempted and they were put to death with the sword. Then they went about, and sheepskins and goatskins being destined, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom their world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Would this be the time period that it's talking about right there? Some of those things, yes. Verse 35, even more. Where, where is that, Ken? Hebrews 11, Hebrews 36 11. to 38. Okay. But Hebrews 11, 35, the middle of it, others were tortured not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. <clears throat> That's Second Maccabees 7, am I right, or 6? Which was un in Anaxipiphanes' reign, right? There was this, it's an amazing story, you need to read it sometime. Just horrible story. Of this woman who had seven sons, am I right? I think it was. Have you read, have you read that before? Do you know that story? Do you know that story, Cameron? What story? The story of this woman who had seven sons. They were being tortured and killed one by one uh, because they refused to renounce the Lord. And uh, so I, I'll, sometime we need to get the copy of that story and read it. That's you've, read you've done it before. Yeah, I've done it. Yeah, I've done it before here. It's an amazing story. And, you know, they're trying to get the, the mom to beg the children to save their lives by renouncing the Lord. And, and their faith and courage, they're all going for a better re re resurrection. 
and they're willing to be tortured and killed one by one, and she encourages them to be merciful to her and be killed for the cause of Christ and not save their own lives. It's a moving story, and I think that is what he's talking about in the universe 35, that something that happened in the era of Antioch's epiphanies. I suspect some of these other things in 36 to 38 also, probably not all of them. It was just a terrible time. Really, really horrible persecution. And, and you see why they needed the comfort of this section of Daniel. You know, to endure. It looked like God had just abandoned his people. Why is he letting them go through all this? Well, if we'll keep reading in Daniel. We'll see why. You know, we'll see that the Lord's going to win the victory and his faithful, if they'll stick it out, he will bless them. Uh, and so, I think we've just started the story. Like I say, verse 36 is the verse where people do the jump. The premillennialists and many people today jump to the Antichrist at the end of time in verse 36, in my judgment, with no basis in reality. A number of brethren jump to the Roman Empire in verse 36. I don't think that has basis either. I think right on through we're going to be talking about Antioch's epiphanies and the terrible persecution. Uh, through the end of chapter 12. So. so you're looking for an in his place or something like I that am. and you don't see it. I don't see it. And I see the subject being the same. I see the continued emphasis on this crisis. I also see this was written in Hebrew, which those parts are dealing not with the Romans so much as with things affecting the Jews specifically. And I see the introduction in chapter 10 referring to the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, and these were the offshoots of Greece. So I don't think the introduction sets us up to expect Roman Empire stuff, like you had in chapter 2 and chapter 7 in the parts that were Aramaic. I think this is setting us up to look at, you know, stuff like in chapter 8 with Antioch's Epiphanies and what's going on with the Jewish nation. At the end of verse 24 where it said for a time, is there a common thing through the Bible about four time actually means a specific idea or anything, or is it? I don't know about that, but in these sections, four time indicates God's got a time on another. Okay. Well, that was a lot to cover. Sorry, that's so complicated. But we just mentioned in class last night that it's a history we're not super familiar with. We don't study it a lot, and most of us haven't read the history of the Maccabees and um, Brian said, man, I had never studied this until I went to FC. And Boyd said, I don't think I've studied it since I was at FC. We all laughed. <laughs> that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah. It is complicated because we aren't familiar with the history. But that's more or less what I understand about all that. That corresponded to what you said? Oh, absolutely. Okay.